Hello and welcome to Box Office Culture. On this week's episode, we have a very special episode recorded in front of a live audience in our black box space here at the United Theater this past week. Joining me this week, we have three very special guests, Broadway director Ashley Brooke Monroe, shipwreck survivor Steve Callahan, and visual artist Alexis Rockman. They're joining me for a live panel discussion that we called Life is a Story, The Journey of Life of Pi, From Story to Screen to Stage. That title comes from a quote from the Life of Pi novel that states, The world isn't just the way it is. It is how we understand it, no? And in understanding something, we bring something to it, no? Doesn't that make life a story? And with that, here is our conversation on storytelling, adaptation, and the creative process from pre-production to production on both film and on the Broadway stage. the United. I'm Tony Nunes. I'm the artistic director here. Uh, and I'm thrilled to welcome you all for tonight's event, uh, which is a very unique conversation on storytelling and the creative process. Uh, Jan Martel's best-selling Life of Pi is regarded as a literary classic. The book's been adapted twice now, first for the Ang Lee film in 2012, and most recently into the, the now-hit award-winning Broadway play. Life of Pi, in all of its forms, book, movie, play, is centered on this concept of choosing your own story. To celebrate this theme and dive into the various processes of adapting story across many mediums, I'm thrilled to welcome our guests for this panel discussion. Alexis Rockman, the inspirational artist and Tiger Vision concept artist for the Life of Pi film. Shipwreck survivor Steve Callahan, who served as the marine and survival consultant on the film and Life of Pi on Broadway resident director, Ashley Brooke Monroe. Welcome to the three of you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. I'm gonna to talk to each of you individually a little bit, but before diving into those individual talks, I wanted to ask a question of all of you collectively. Um, each of you come from far different experiences uh, in fields, but you, you each share this common thread of this, this work, Life of Pi, um, in different ways. Uh, you were part of the teams responsible for bringing that book to life on stage, on film. Uh, for, I'm sure a lot of you know Life of Pi. The story revolves around a character named Pi Patel, who survives a shipwreck and finds himself stranded on a lifeboat with a Bengal tiger named Richard Parker. Uh, testing the limits of courage, resilience, and faith. And I'd like to, to start off by asking all of you, and you can, you can take this in any order you want, um, what, what does that book, what has that book and, and that work meant to you personally? Because it, it's a pretty deep work based <clears throat> on faith and based on belief and story. So I just wanted to start there before we dive into the, the actual process of your work. Oh, you want me to start? Yeah. 
Oh, um, <laughs> I'm not sure. That's a very good question. I'm not sure how to answer that exactly. Um, I was sent the book. Uh, my wife and I were living aboard in, um, in Australia at the time and uh, read through it. And frankly, I was reading it and going, oh, that never happened. That couldn't happen. <laughs> but then I would think, oh, how could I make that happen? How could it work out? And, and when Ang um, uh, first approached me to work on the, on the film, the thing that really attracted me, actually, wasn't so much the, uh, the exactly the story, but um, he said, "I want you to. Um, I w we want to treat the ocean as a character, and that means a great deal to me. I spend a lot of my life on the on the water, and uh, most movies have used the ocean as a set, but it doesn't have life, and so it gave me the opportunity to help." bring the ocean alive, show all its characters and how that plays into the story. Um, in terms of the, the story itself, the, an aspect of it that probably is a very personal interpretation of it, but it uh, meant a lot to me. I had a philosophy background and you have this young boy who's interested in all of the religions. Um, and to me it was like he kept searching for the spirituality uh, God, if you will, but he didn't find it ashore in those religions. Where did he find it? He found it in the real world at sea. So I find Life of Pi is full of these ironies and conundrums uh, that is this fanciful kind of fantasy, you know, this fantasy, uh, but it, it also has um, a strong message about being rooted in the real world at the same time. What about you, Ashley? I think, can everyone hear me okay? Great. Uh, one of my favorite things about the story of Life of Pi is that it contains so many themes that all feel really universal and really human. And when I talk to people who see the play, I'm always struck by how they're taking different things away from it, like a story about survival or about story itself and what it means to make the story of your life, but also immigration and trauma. And I think the theme and the thing inside of it that has always most spoke to me is animals and the, the ways in which the story shows us kind of what is really human in animals and what is really animalistic in humans. And just like Pai Patel, my dad runs a zoo. And so I've spent my whole life um, surrounded by animals and thinking about them and thinking about their um, survival and the ways that they resemble humans. So that's kind of the part of the story that I've always most connected to. Alexis? Well, I didn't particularly like the book, and um, I have to say that I found some of the anthropomorphic um, characterizations irritating, but I love the script. And when Ang approached me to sort of set the tone for the visual language of the movie, there was a script, and that was it. And um, he asked me what I could what I could help with, and I thought. Well, I'm not going to be able to help with, you know, um, Pondicherry, but I can certainly design the island and some other things that, that happen. And one of the things that, um, and I worked on it for three and a half years, um, off and on, um, I ended up designing a part of the movie that, I, I mean, if I died tomorrow, I'd be happy in certain levels of what I've achieved through Ang. And I have to also say that the reason I wanted to work on the movie was because of David McGee's script, um, 
who I think did a great job of um, translating some of the things that I thought were a problem with the book, and Ang, who I loved as a filmmaker way before I was introduced to him by um, a mutual friend of my wife who's in the audience, um, Jean Castelli, who's a producer on the, on the um, movie. So I found it a tremendous privilege to be able to be on the ground floor and sort of, I made the work that sold the project to 20th Century Fox to get the money. Um, so, um, and then I worked on it off and on after that. So on this, this journey, this conversation about the, the process of adaptation, um, I, I want to start where it makes the most sequential sense um, in all of your experiences with, with Life of Pi, um, and that's at the development pre-production stage. So I'm, I'm going to start with you, Alexis. Um, let me just give a, a quick bio background on you for everybody. Um, so Alexis Rockman is a painter and environmental activist whose work tells stories of natural histories confronting the dystopian future of the biodiversity crisis, global warming, and genetic engineering. His work has been exhibited around the world and showcased at prestigious galleries and museums, including the Carnegie Museum of Art, Smithsonian American Art Museum, and starting today at Mystic Seaport, where his new exhibition, Alexis Rockman Oceanus, opens. Um, Alexis on Life of Pi served as the backbone for much of the aesthetics, I, I guess you can say, for the visual identity of the film and specific parts of that film. Um, so I wanted to start there. You were brought in on, on the early stages of development, I believe, on the film. Uh, and it's kind of unique because your images, much like H.R. Giger um, or you know, Sid Mead for Blade Runner, H.R. Giger worked on Alien, those concepts, that, that art became kind of a blueprint, blueprint for the, the fantastical. Um, and your work became a blueprint for the fantastical in Life of Pi. So I wanted to know how you were approached for the project uh, and, and what that collaboration looked like from well, the start. <clears throat> I don't know if we've had this conversation, but I don't recall it, but you really nailed exactly what my role models were since high school in terms of Giger and Sid Mead, who I knew both of them. Um, and um, they, uh, that was my, my, bless you, that was my dream come true. I was somewhat late in my career as a, somehow I got distracted by being an artist, but that was what I wanted to do since I was a kid. And um, those are the two people I had in mind when I decided I wanted to be whatever artist I was going to be able to do. So um, I, that, that was, those were my role models. And you, you said it very succinctly. And to, to be clear, um, Giger designed Alien, Ridley Scott went to bat, and it's funny that it's the same studio, 20th Century Fox, who had e equal problems with me working on the movie, and there's an NC-17 version of this talk we could have. Um, <laughs> but um, I have to say that Ang protected me from the studio, and that's very much what you know Ridley Scott did for Giger, and um, also for Sid Mead. Both those movies are directed by Ridley Scott. So. so how were you brought in to, to begin working on the film? I got a call from Jean Castelli and said, Ang wants to talk to you about possibly working on um, Life of Pi. I was like, okay. I was like, I guess I better read it. That was a Thursday. I had a meeting Monday morning, and um, he's, I walked into his loft. It was about three blocks from where I, we were living in the city, and he, s he said, um, you know, I want, can you help with this project? I said, well, what do you have in mind? And 
he, I brought a big book, a big coffee table book of mine, and um, he looked at it and said, I think you can help, and why don't you read the script and come back with what you might be able to contribute? And I said, I can't help you with the human part of this, but I can help you with the animals and the ecology fantasy parts, because I'd seen every movie ever made, and I knew the genre really well also. And we were, Dorothy and I were about to go to Madagascar to do a project, coincidentally. Let's, let's talk about your connection with nature, actually. I, I read a Times piece about you um, that said your childhood fascination with uh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, um, where your mother worked, I believe, inspired a lot of your work. Um, so what's the driving force behind your work and, and that balance between nature and activism, and, and how did you bring that into what you did on this film? Oh, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> I don't want to take up the whole evening. There's two other people that certainly have their stories to tell, but. Let's just say that as a city kid, I used the museum and lots of other um, uh, activists from you know, Jane Goodall to Marlon Perkins to National Geographic to Jacques Cousteau as inspirations to leave the island and go to parts of the world that I felt were imperiled. And um, I love these places and the animals and plants that live there and I just tried to, you know, um, have as many experiences as I could and then when I became an artist I was more and more alarmed by what was happening and I think it's been a terrible disaster where we're headed, frankly. I, want, I do want to talk about a specific sequence in the film. I think these are the images from that sequence. I might be the, wrong. Yeah, those are about a quarter of them and um, there was, <laughs> I was, David McGee, the screenwriter, we all had dinner last night who coincidentally came to the opening at um, Mystic, and he wrote the screenplay for Life of Pi, and if you're seeing The Little Mermaid later tonight, he wrote that as well. He says, you know, um, he loves the ocean, as he says. But um, the, there was a funny moment where I was, there was a big hole in the script, and it was called the French Chef Sequence. Do you know what that, that sequence was at one point? It was a Bollywood musical underwater with ocean-going life as the set in different um, uh, religious buildings, a mosque, a synagogue, and a church that were made out of coral reefs that I designed. Well, Fox would have none of that, and they cut it instantly. <laughs> and a year later, Ang came back to me and said, well, we're gonna cut it down to something uh, called Tiger Vision, and I was like, what does that mean? And I thought, well, what if Pi and the tiger came together and they're starving to death and they're hallucinating and they go to the bottom of the ocean and it's through their collective eyes that they see both animal and human culture. And that's the way I tried to design that sequence that has the squid and the whale that are made out of parts of the ocean and parts of the, um, the zoo collection that had perished in the um, shipwreck. And those were the things that were battling and they came together and then Pisces's mother at the bottom and then a fish that's named after my wife's mother cuts off her head, <laughs> and then we see the Simpson at the bottom. So that was, and Jean and I came up with that idea on the number one train going downtown from 27th Street after Ang said, you better get an idea fast. So that was all done on the platform. That's amazing, it's a remarkable scene. Um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of, of challenging perspectives and, and translate your work on the film and, and your own interpretations of Pi I had nothing to do with interpretation. I did drawings that I thought would be appropriate and then there were thousands of talented people that were headed by Ang and 
Susan McLeod and every other visual effects person that interpreted them into making something that I thought turned out fantastic. So I had nothing to do with that. I just made drawings and as, as an assistant coach to the Knicks, who was my high school teammate, said, I made some suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your, your new show, Oceanus, um, which I previewed last night at the Seaport. Um, yeah. Buy the book. <laughs> Uh, the show was striking. It felt in some ways, in some ways tied to the greater theme in Life of Pi, of translating a story about harshness through art and beauty um, because of it, you know, that show kind of touches on uh, nature and man's effect on the oceans in a, in a big way. Can you talk a little bit about the show and, and the conversations that you hope that work brings out in people? Well, all I can say is that it was a tremendous honor to be asked to do the project through Christina kind of brofies in the audience um, and uh, her colleagues at the museum, um, they just asked me to do a project through the lens of their collection and I did the best I could. It's pretty amazing. It opened today, so I implore everyone to, to go to the seaport this week or, or in the next couple of weeks and check it out. It turned out great. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I can't uh, see you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump over to Steve now on the next stop along this talk about adaptation uh, to the idea of the real world experience and using personal story as a tool in building and adapting fantasy. Uh, just some bio on you. Steve Callahan is an American author, naval architect, inventor, and sailor. In 1981, he survived for 76 days adrift on the Atlantic Ocean in a life, a life raft. Uh, he recounted his ordeal in the best-selling book, Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 36 weeks. Steve served as the survival expert for the Life of Pi film, helping bring his experiences with the harsh realities of survival at sea to such vivid life on screen. So before we talk about your personal experience on the film and being shipwrecked and lost at sea yourself, I wanted to ask why you think that grounding a film in realism, uh, even one as fantastical as this, uh, is critical for story and character development? Well, I think there's always a balance that, um, um, of course, I, 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 I've written mostly nonfiction in my life. Um, and with Life of Pi, there was always that tension um, between trying to make things, well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. When I, I did some, uh, after meeting Ang and they got the green light, when I stepped off the plane in Taiwan, I asked Ang, um, well, what is it you want me to do? And he said, well, I want you to make the film better or help me make the film better. And I said, well, that's very general. And uh, can you be a little more specific? He said, I want you to bring authenticity to it and make it convincing, uh, which is a tall order for, of course, this, um, this, this kind of a, a film, um, this fantastic allegory. Um, but I, frankly, I always looked at my own book, Adrift, as sort of a nonfiction allegory. Um, my, the, what I lived on, uh, the Dorado, uh, which appear in the film, were kind of like my Richard Parker, if you will. So I had to constantly kind of relate um, the real world to this other fantasy world and somehow try to help him merge the two together so you can be taken into the film and believe in it, um, like, like, almost like you're there. And, and um, 
I think that if you get too far out, yeah, we can be entertained by something, but when you can blend enough of reality in with it, it really draws you in and um, uh, allows people to relate to it on a, on a deeper level. So how, how are you approached to work on the film? Uh, actually, David McGee is, is really responsible for all of our sins. He, uh, uh, his nephew was reading Adrift, and I guess uh, uh, Ang was talking to him about the film, and so um, his nephew came to David and said, hey, go look up this joker up in Maine. Maybe he's got something to add to this. And uh, I got a call then from, uh, um, from uh, David, uh, I'm sorry, um, David Lee, uh, with whom Ang has worked since they've been in film school together. No relation, but close friends, obviously. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, well, this guy Ang Lee would like to come up and talk to you. And uh, I thought, my, my life has been uh, often guided by, I don't know, uh, fortunate circumstance, serendipity, and I try to go with the flow. And the fact that these dear friends had sent me a copy of the book, I was reading through it. I could see it as being in numerous ways parallel to my nonfiction story. Uh, drew me to that possibility. I was like, ooh, the, the Ang Lee's gonna come. And my wife and I are both uh, love film and we had seen most of Ang's films, which we think are all gorgeous and wonderful films. And um, so I said, well, this is, this is great. I mean. I know, I know enough about the film world, not much, but I know enough that, you know, 99% probably never get made. But it'll be a kick to hang out with Ang Lee for a couple of days and Dave and McGee. So they came up, we spent a, a horrible day in a, in a boat. They'd never been on a boat before. And uh, <laughs> it was raining and it's like one of those thick fogs. I, I heard that just, story. Totally, yeah, <laughs> he's heard it. It's so, you know, you get soaked and, you know, that we went out. Seasick. And, <laughs> they, uh, well, they told me told me stories about filming and all of that stuff, and I told them a bunch of sea stories, some of which were actually true, and uh, <laughs> and so we, it, that w it was just wonderful. And then they went away, and um, uh, I had some health issues and whatnot, and couldn't. And uh, but a couple of what was it, maybe one or two years later, uh, I got a call from one of the the producers who said, you know, well, we got the green light for this. You want to come to Taiwan? So it was like, well, okay, that sounds that sounds wonderful. Um, so that's how it started. So I want to talk a little bit about your personal survival experience. Um, this raft here that we have on stage, generously shared by the Mystic Seaport Collections team, thank you, um, is very similar, I believe, to the raft that you spent 76 days on alone adrift at sea. Yep. Um, I read your book, Adrift. Um, it blew me away. It's amazingly well-written. Um, I implore anyone to read it. Uh, it's really captivating. Um, but can you give the, the shorter version, obviously, um, of okay. that, that story and, and your experiences and how, they, how they're similar to Pai Patel's in the movie? And also talk a little bit about um, you know, what maybe the book got wrong and you brought to make right with the film. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> the last part's <laughs> going to be tough. I can tell. I can. I can. I can summarize a drift pretty easily. I was a young man, left the United States, kind of um, uh, disillusioned uh, in the early '80s with American and what was going on. I was always a loner and you know pretty introverted, 
And I had, had a dream since I was very, very young of crossing the ocean alone or um, with somebody else in a small boat. I, 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 I was much more interested in boats as um, uh, lifestyle and, and uh, a way of reaching the world's greatest wilderness. Um, and and that, that's open to anybody. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be particularly smart, which is an advantage for me. And I could, so I did that. I sailed across the Atlantic and on the way back, um, which is supposed to be the milk run, the easy route, um, I got about a week out and uh, it was kind of blowing at night. Something hit the boat, got a big hole in it. I bailed out into this raft, very similar to this. Um, and spent the next two and a half months living to, learning to live like an aquatic caveman. Um, that's basically it. Uh, the environment that would, and this is a, a huge similarity, there's so many similarities to Life of Pi. Um, perhaps uh, from the beginning, early on in the drift, I think in the introduction, I, I, I include a letter I wrote home to explain to people, you know, why would you want to do this crazy thing? And uh, I explained, I said, you know, some, a lot of people go to church, but I go to see, I consider it the world's greatest cathedral. And I've always felt like spiritually connected. There's a very, when you're on a boat, a uh, sailboat especially, you're very present. It's almost like this Zen-like existence where you're, you're just really present. The past, the future don't make much difference. You're like the brains of a beast uh, guiding this thing, coordinating wind and machine and, uh, and waves. Um, and so there's that sort of religious spiritual parallel in my own story, I think, uh, that runs through it. The, as I said, the Dorado became kind of my Richard Parker. Um, ocean survivors learned to live off of um, the, a concept I call, um, you know, kind of uh, island ecologies for anything that floats, and actually probably things that don't float as well, but I've seen light bulbs at sea that grow weeds and barnacles and f even sometimes quite large fish pa uh, parked under quite small objects. And uh, so slowly I learned to become kind of a fish farmer um, and had this love-death relationship with this school of fish that surround me, my doggies. And I got very, very attached to them, so I had these really very mixed feelings about much as the pie does with Richard Parker. I'm dependent on them. They're a danger to me at the same time. And uh, so this could be a very long conversation. So I, I think that's, that's probably kind of caps it off, but there's a, there, there are a lot of parallels through the whole book about that and the, the environment that, uh, and, and the wonder of, of that world. So can you talk a little bit about your work on the actual film itself? Um, I know that you worked kind of across multiple uh, multiple groups. You worked with the mm -hmm. prop department, the makeup department. Yeah. You worked. You helped with the wave tank. What was it like being on set? And and what, you know what kind of what kind of experiences did you bring to the storytelling and, and to the the production itself? Yeah. Um, um, I, I guess I've, I've always considered myself a, a, a jack of a lot of trades and master of nothing. And um, uh, I've done, you know, I've, I've written, I've designed boats, I've built boats, I've taught design, I, you know, did a lot of voyages um, and, there are, and written a lot about this world. Um, and, and I'm a hands-on person, I've built a lot of stuff. Um, and this was a project, it was an opportunity for me, as I would find out, 
uh, to push all of my limits, and it was the only project I can think of in my entire life. I tend to be project-oriented, but it's the only one that I can think of that basically demanded every skill set that I had ever developed, which I thought was a lot of fun. And Ang kind of got me, and I got him, and uh, um, he's very, art, you know, such an artist, um, and I have a visual eye to some degree. I certainly appreciate your your, your work. Um, and so I did some pre-production stuff, like looking at how the film was mapped out and looking at it and going, well, that doesn't really make any sense or something and, you know, lobby for bringing as much realism to it as possible. Um, and then it just kept opening up. He kept, you know, I worked with, as you say, you know, people in, in I, uh, quite a lot on props, designing and in, in, uh, in making props and uh, I know, coaching the actor, uh, which was a big thing. Um, this kid had never, even, in fact, when he came to the set, he couldn't swim. Uh, so thanks wow. to, <laughs> thanks to uh, uh, the stuntman and his son, uh, who was also a stuntman at about the same age as Surridge, um, he ended up actually doing all his own stunts and doing all these underwater sequences and stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it, he was really quite something. Um, so anyway, I, I ended up basically working with everybody um, through the through the film. Uh, so that was a, that was a great privilege. And and but Ang is not. I've also worked with a couple other directors, um, and Ang is such an artistic personality, but it's not always the most organized production. And uh, a lot of people actually got kind of fed up and left, including the guys who made the wave tank. So they were going to start filming the next Monday. And, uh, and David Womark, one of the producers, came to me and he says, well, we got to start filming Monday. What do you think you could do with a wave tank? And I'm like, wave tank? What do I know about a wave tank? Um, so I ended up, that was actually really fun to test the wave tank and develop different, different um, we had a lot of variations so we could develop lots of different sea states. Um, and, and try to bring, make that make the ocean kind of kind of a realistic thing. So it, it was it was great fun to do all that. Yeah, I mean it translates great. Um, th this picture down here on the left is uh, I believe that's the prop Dorado, yeah. right? Yeah, that's that's the prop Dorado. Actually, coming out of it are uh, two little lines that are hard to see there. But that was in the there was an early scene where he finally catches his fish, which is actually quite similar to me when he finally catches this fish and he kind of breaks down as I did when I caught my first fish and you're both thank you're just thanking everything for it but you're also kind of desperate and you, you know this is where your life has taken you to this point and um, they're, they're control lines so that you can you can make the fish flop around, which was pretty cool. I thought it was amazing that that particular type of fish played such a vital role in, in Life of Pi and in your personal story, yeah, it just yeah, they gather like I say, everything that floats is sort of an island develops an ecology. So they would gather around the raft, and eventually, I I called them uh, my I named my raft Rubber Ducky, and uh, uh, so I lived in Duckyville. I was kind of the mayor of Duckyville, and these were all my citizens around. You know, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine seventy six days. It's a long time. Um, all right, for the final stop in this conversation, um, I want to talk about adaptation and the most recent Life of Pi translation to the Broadway stage with Ashley. Um, Ashley Brooke Monroe is a New York-based theater director whose primary focus is on developing new plays and musicals. 
She currently serves as the resident director for Life of Pi on Broadway, as well as the National Tour of Hamilton. Ashley has developed, uh, developed work with New York Theater Workshop, the Public Theater, Classic Stage Company, Musical Theater Factory, and more. Um, I was fortunate enough to go uh, a few weeks back with my partner and see Life of Pi on Broadway, which is incredible. Um, and I have to say very sincerely that it's one of the most visually striking shows, uh, most engaging shows and most fast paced shows that I've seen on Broadway. I mean, it, it flew by, everyone was, everyone was kind of in a, a tissy in the audience because it, the intermission hit and it was, it felt like it had been 20 minutes, but it had not. So it's, a, it's an incredible play. Um, but before talking about the show specifically, I wanted to ask about your own experiences in, in developing plays. Um, and what it takes to translate work like Life of Pi, or, or any work for that matter, um, whether it's film, book, anything, to, to the stage. Sure. Um, I've done a handful of projects that are adaptations of other mediums to the stage, and I think the, they're all very different, of course, but the core thrust that unites them is trying to find what the essence of a story is, and what are the essential elements that must be contained to keep the driving force behind the story, whether it was a movie or a book or an article, um, and then just how do those things come to life. The theater is such an unusual medium and that it has to just be direct action live in front of you, so you have to distill a story, I think, to the essence and to a way to make it um, you know, digestible in two hours live experience, but otherwise it's quite different for each project. Yeah, I mean, this, so, before it became a film, Life of Pi was considered unfilmable for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, part of it is its fantastical nature. Another part is uh, one of the rules of filmmaking is don't work with animals, don't work with children, don't work with water. Uh, it's all three <laughs> of those things. Um, but they succeeded. But then to take that story, that unfilmable story, to the stage, uh, it seems like an incredible feat. Can you talk a bit about how the, the history of this adaptation, because I know it started, I believe, in London, um, how it came to pass, how, and how it ended up on Broadway, and then how you became involved? Yes, definitely. So it originally started in Sheffield, which is a smaller town in England, um, and the Lolita Chakrabarty, who adapted the play, or back to the story for the stage, uh, had written a draft and they would just go into workshops of it, the direct, original director and the puppetry director, and just try to make the things that she wrote come to life. Uh, and they were very clear that she should just let her imagination run wild and not think about how are they gonna put this on stage. So one of the stage directions is the ship sinks. And she wasn't worrying about like, how do you make a ship on stage and how do you make it sink and what do you do? She was just writing the story as she saw it. And then the creative team took her inspiration and figured out how to stage it. So it was a very cyclical pattern where she would give them some pages, they would see what was stageable and what came out of it and how the movement developed, and she would watch and then sort of take that and go back and write something that reflected what they had created in the room and vice versa. And so the whole language, of, they didn't know at first that it was going to be puppets necessarily or how they were gonna create these animals or what the puppets were gonna look like. Um, so each of those things just kind of evolved slowly along the way. Um, and I joined the team late last summer. Um, I heard that there was a production of Life of Pi coming to Boston to the ART theater at Harvard before it went to Broadway. 
and I just told my agent I was interested, and I was like, could you get me a meeting with the Life of Pi people? And he did, and we had a series of conversations, and then I joined the team for the Boston development, and then came to Broadway with it. Can you talk a little bit about the, the puppetry, um, which is, is remarkable and very unique and different? Uh, similar to Warhorse, um, I, I think it's the same team that developed. It's partially the same team. Some okay. of, there's some overlap between Warhorse and us, yeah. It's amazing puppetry because the, the tiger, for instance, that's three people. Yes. Uh, and they're doing all of the motion for the tiger, the sound for the tiger. So you have these actors on stage at all times doing the puppetry with the, with the actor who plays Pi. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, uh, the, the animals, the puppetry, and how that came together and how that fluidity kind of works and, and kind of sets the show apart? Yeah, definitely. I think the puppetry is really the heart of the theatrical production. Um, it's incredibly, it's a physical feat for these. There's eight puppeteers in our show, and they have to work as an incredible team. The three parts of the tiger are called the head, the heart, and the hind. Um, and the actors all play multiple things because it's too physically taxing to do the same thing every show, eight shows a week. So you might be the head of the tiger in the matinee, and then in the evening, you're the heart of a hyena and also a zebra, um, a little bit of a giraffe. They sort of all do different animals. But they have to work um, as a team and like one being to bring these animals to life. So if you're the front paws of Richard Parker, you can't zig when the back of you is zagging. Like you have to all be um, breathing and thinking as one being. So they do a lot of really amazing physical training to make that possible. And of course, a lot of studying of the animals. You know, the puppeteers had a week of rehearsal before all of the actors arrived where they just focused on animal um, logistics and sort of details of how you work these puppets. Um, and yeah, they're really the, the heart of the show. And yeah, I mean, they are the heart of the show, but I'll say the, the, the actor that I saw, the Pai Patel character as well is, is such a heart and, yes. and, and integral part, obviously, of the show. The narrative structure of the show moves at a really steady pace. Um, the way the scenes shift from Pai Patel in a doctor's office recounting his story, and then this kind of the visuals melt away the doctor's office, the boat comes up from the stage, he's on the boat, the tiger comes out, it's seamless transitions. The choreography of all of that and, and that performance and the performance of these, these puppets with three people, how is it directing and blocking and, and working out something like that? Because it, it seems so meticulous, you know, the blocking and everybody being on the same point when the boat goes down, I mean, it seemed very, very, very well choreographed. So I imagine as a yeah. part of the directing team that must be incredibly challenging and yeah. tedious. I think meticulous, you definitely said the right word. It's very meticulous, it's really precise, which I think makes it really fun. Like you have to be doing things in exactly the right way or it's a safety hazard. You know, there's a point where an actor jumps through a hole in the floor that is quite, um, logistically complicated and they practice it dozens and dozens of times to make sure that it will go safely in the show. Um, but it's it's really fun. I just sort of, you know, download all of the blocking and memorize every moment of the show in my role so that I can then make sure it stays in really precise shape and also teach it to other people. So I'm, we're still, because we only opened a few months ago, we're still working on understudy tracks and getting all the coverage for the show. So I'm teaching a new person the role of Pi right now 
and it's, it's really exciting to work with her and to, you know, be like, you have to put your toes here or the boat will crush you. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's very, there's a lot of intricate battle fight choreography between Pi and the tiger uh, involving an oar. And that is another moment where you've, it's incredibly important to be precise or you risk actually hitting the puppeteers in the face or breaking the puppet with the oar, um, which some, that sometimes happens. We had a series in Boston where we broke three oars in two shows. Um, and then we ran out of oars and someone ran to like a home goods and found like a, a decorative oar that we painted for the evening show. Um, so things happen, it's not always perfect, but we try to just be really um, precise and we're in rehearsal every day, even though the show is also running at night um, to keep it in the best shape possible and to keep everyone safe. The stage is also on a rake. Um, which is incredibly physically challenging for the actors. So everything is tilted downstage, literally, towards the audience. Um, so the things on wheels and the performer's body themselves are always, we have to keep them in check because they're tilted the whole show. Wow. Yeah, it's quite the dance. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so I kind of want to open up the floor to questions, if anybody has questions for, for any of these. Well, I actually three. have a question. Yeah. Um, do you, were you involved with anything to do with the the con concept work of the play, or you came in as more of a for hire? in after the concept okay. was finished. Because one of the questions I've had about this project is, you know, you have a legacy of a cinematic project that, you know, won 11 Oscars or whatever, and has an identity. Um, were the, was the, the production trying to avoid thinking about that? Or how, what was their relationship to the movie? Since it's not like, you know, that long ago that this has an identity. And where is the theatrical experience in relationship to the visual identity of the movie? That's a good question. I don't know that I'm the best person to answer it, but I know they thought of it in with respect to the movie. Tried to think about more about bringing the novel to the stage rather than the novel to the movie and the movie to the stage. So I think the original creative team went back to the novel as the source, but then there is so much overlap. There are so many lines in the movie that are the same lines in the play because they're also lines from the book. Yeah, David mentioned that he was gonna sue the production. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I wish they all just kidding. these enterprises. <laughs> no, but it's quite similar. Like the final line of the book is the final line of the movie is the final line of the play. So even though- And it's not the final line, well, it's the final line of the play and the book and the movie? Okay. So I haven't seen it, but um, I'm curious to see it. I'm curious to hear what you think. Uh, me too. <laughs> it's shorter too, right? The play is how long? Uh, it's two hours. Two hours? With the intermission, so a little less. Yeah, and the movie is over two hours, right? Not really. No? I can't I don't think okay. No. All right. Uh, does anybody have any questions? There's a microphone right up front if you want to come up and ask a question. I have a question for you while they're coming. Okay. Uh, do you think Jan Martel read your book in yes. preparation? He did, right? Because there's so much similarity. Once I learned more about your book, I was like, well, he, I know he did so much research in writing Life of Pi. It seems yeah. like it was a source for it, right? Well, he's not a sailor, but he and the reason why these sailing friends of ours sent me a copy of the book, they said, look on page whatever it was, and, and you know, I'm mentioned in the book briefly. Oh, you are? But then, when I went to the production, actually, Ang had everybody 
all the, the department heads and stuff read both Adrift and Life of Pi. Mm -hmm. And like the prop guy, I have a photo someplace where the prop, the, the prop master has um, both books together and they're all like all these yellow stickies in them because they're, they're, so they're actually a lot of expressions are very similar. Uh, that would be called plagiarism. Well, actually, do you want to sue anyone? No, oh, my, my lawsuit against, against Fox would be because I went in one day and, you know, we created all kinds of stuff, you know, for, for this, including a survival manual that Pi writes in, which is another big parallel to my story, writing, you know, people ask me about, like, the most important survival tools I had. Uh, I always include uh, the log, the little log that I, 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 I kept, which is incredibly important to Pi as well. And so Robin is in there, and he's writing all this stuff down in the book, which the is sec the, the second assistant director. Sorry? Wasn't he the second assistant? No, he's the prop master. Oh, okay. So his responsibility was, like, dealing with this, and, of course, we've got to prepare all this stuff for the actor. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm seeing he's actually, if you, look, if, if you could blow that up, you'd see that they're all passages from Adrift in the, in the, uh, on, in the film oh, wow. that are in the manual. Um, so, I don't know, I can't, I've kind of lost the plot. And, uh, uh, You're just confirming that Jan did use your book, probably, as inspiration. I, I don't see how he didn't. I'm sure he did a, a lot, not just a drift, but he read Survive the Savage Seas, which he credits a lot, and um, uh, which was about a family that were 38 days adrift in the Pacific, a fantastic story. They were really inventive in terms of how they adapted to that environment. And... Um, even William Bly, uh, famous Captain Bly, who actually made this incredible voyage, open voyage after he was tossed off of the bounty. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure he drew on all of those things. It took a litigious turn there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? Well, when you deal Boy. with Fox, you have to have that state of mind. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's the nature it's of that. It's now Disney. But I guess. Actually, as a side, I mean, I think we all borrow from, from, from everybody. And, and, you know, when I, I read it, I, I could see all these parallels through it throughout the whole book. But it was like, I, I thought that he had, that Jan had taken all these inspirational works and, and combined them in a very unique way. So yeah. that, that's, that's cool with me. Definitely. Does anybody have any other questions? Right up front. Yes, Jan did Jan been, come to the play? Was he the has question. been involved in the creation of the play very heavily at first, uh, and then he, he had a lot of ideas about the play, and uh, now he just comes to the opening nights and is supportive. And <laughs> <laughs> He's very passionate, I think, about all of the details, uh, not all of which can make their way into the play. Um, but he was very useful in the early development stages. My question is for Alexis. You grew up on the island of Manhattan, and so many people think of the city rather than the island. Uh, although your mother did work for the Museum of Natural History, do you think that growing up on the island of Manhattan was a part of your inspiration to become as involved in the environment as you did? I'm sure longing to leave was a big part of it. <laughs> But also, I'm really a creature of the city. I'm a cross between um, Attenborough and Woody Allen. <laughs> Without the pedophilia. Having spent time on numerous islands myself, I, I always think about being on the island 
especially after September 11th, when you were either on the island or off the island. My wife, who's in the front row, really um, had that idea, too, and I, I understand that. Mm. It's good to be on the island. Or you're aware of the water. Both. Thank you. I guess my question's for Alexis. Um, I have not read the book, but there's the carnivorous island, and I'm curious where you came up, if it was you or if it's in the, in the script, but why are there so many meerkats there, or why is the meerkat chosen? And also, Pai, even though it's a carnivorous island, he eats part of the island himself, which is vegetarian, so I'm curious of that. I tried to talk like Ang out of the meerkats, and that was in the book, and he was right, it's an allegory, and I didn't quite understand it at that point, and um, it's a dynamic between a carnivorous island and the fragility of the human existence in that context, and that's why he's both eating it, and then there's the, the previous um, uh, shipwreck um, uh, protagonists have been absorbed by the island, as, as well as the fish that come up through those um, vents that, that I had a lot to do with as well. So I thought of all the, the way it looks, but it really was in the script, the, the words of Meerkat and Carnivorous Island. Thank you. Mm -hmm. A question for Steve. Uh, you still have a boat? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, have, I have a small boat that's languishing in my yard right at the moment, <laughs> needing a rebuild. We've, we've been through a lot of boats through the years and usually built or rebuilt them, so I'm, I'm, I'm downsizing a little so bit. So you don't go too far from shore then, I take it? I'm sorry? You don't go too far from shore. Um, I have certainly, in those years since, I did a lot of ocean crossings, including on some pretty wacky boats. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I love the offshore environment, I still do. Um, you know, for me, it, it's like, I don't know, I've always been attracted to wilderness environments um, for all the reasons that we're talking about here, the things that it reveals to us and when we're out there, um, whether it's the mountains or the open ocean, it's just fantastic. Get back on the horse then, right? Yeah. Thank you. really enjoying this. Thank you so much to all of you. Stephen, my question is for you, and I now intend to read your two books. And I'm wondering, are you at liberty to explain what it was like out there for you, so close to what I'm thinking would be death, and what kept you aligned with, I'm going to be okay, no matter what? Oh, that's, that's a very long uh, uh, answer to that, could be. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've spoken, you know, part of my work actually after this was to get uh, connected to a lot of uh, other survivors. Um, many people wrote to me whether they were, you know, had suffered avalanche, earthquake, being captured by terrorists, I mean, uh, people with uh, more chronic situations, living in abusive homes or, or whatever it was. And uh, it was very interesting to me how many people could kind of relate to my experience um, in different ways and to look for commonalities. Um, um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is gonna really answer your question directly, but um, 
you know, we go through life, we all go through stressful moments in time, uh, or long moments in time in some cases, and um, they, they strain us, but we also, it, it makes, um, it, it reorients our life, it gives us lots of opportunity to reorient our lives, to decide what is important and what's not important. Um, to find within even these horrible experiences great gifts. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many survivors I've talked to, and we all kind of agree. It's like, well, I wouldn't want to go through that again, but um, I, real, I don't regret going through what I did. Um, there can be things like um, uh, a heightened uh, sense of, of importance for things that in normal day life, we don't pay any attention to. Uh, another book I wrote was about, you know, these guys are starving on a boat, half flooded, and, and you know, at one point, and one guy gives another guy a half a cookie. Now, that means nothing to us most of the time, but for that, you know, it was like somebody giving him a kingdom, you know. Um, a, a, a bit of kindness to, to somebody in a hospital, a bit of compassion. Uh, it just, just moves you deeply in the soul. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but um, I don't know. Can you maybe follow up with uh, something a little more specific? Uh, it's a long experience and you have ups and downs all the time. Um, I, I think it's like normal life, but on, on you know, as we always say, on steroids, you have incredible highs and incredible lows and often they're smacked right up against one another. And it's like I hold the raft at one point and it took me about 10 days to repair it and it just about killed me and I just about gave up. But then I, frankly, I got scared. I was like, no, I'm not just talking about this anymore. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to be dead in a few hours if I don't figure something out. And, um, and then I finally, you know, dawn, light dawned on Marblehead, and uh, I figured out a solution. And it was like, I'm king of the world, you know. I, um, so it's like that, uh, and you, you just got to keep yourself going. There are lots of tools in the toolkit, in a way. Uh, one of them is, you know, take one step at a time, pay attention to the second, you know, the second. Oh, there's a second. Mm, there's another second. And so time can get really stretched out, um, but you just have to be very, very present. So in a way, I mean, mariners, people who sail offshore especially, are, are actually well-prepared. People who deal with these, these um, emergencies are in, in, and do it pretty functionally tend to be the people you might think would, like pilots policemen, <laughs> emergency workers, because they're used to use, dealing with stress all the time. And my experience of going to sea is that, you know, you're kind of riding on the edge of disaster and problems all the time, and there's nobody else there to deal with it. So you get used to dealing with those problems, prioritizing things, keeping a, uh, even though your old life has been flushed down the toilet, you, you really rely on, on um, creating routines, new routines, and maintaining the ones that you have. I mean, I could go on and on about this. There's, there's, there's lots of little different tools that you rely on. Um, for myself, a big part, core of the book, is that I kind of divided myself into different personalities. There was the physical part of me and the emotional part of me and this kind of Captain Bly rational part that came between the other two because the the starving part of me, the physical part, wants to kill all the fish. The emotional part of me was so attached to them and their spiritual creatures, I didn't want to kill any of them. And then the, you know, the other, 
rational part we come in between. So there, there are battles, huge battles that go on within yourself all the time. And I would constantly just remind myself, you know, you, you, you may be screwing up here. You don't know when you're going to make a mistake that's going to result in your death, but you're doing the best you can. And I think that's what we all have to do in life is just go on and say, well, you're doing the best you can and, and mean it and try to, to keep doing that. to know more about something that actually was mentioned pretty early in the talk about anthropomorphizing animals and the relationship that we often have with animals. I think in all the contexts that you all have worked with that idea, both in the literal sense of adapting an animal to the stage and also you know, creating an image of an animal or creating a relationship with an animal, how do you balance that idea of the character of an animal, what it is, versus you know, the kind of things that we project onto it? both in a, a practical sense of operating a puppet or creating a piece of art. Who are you talking to? Uh, <laughs> I guess everybody, sorry. Go, you go. Do you want to go first? No, please. <laughs> that's, your, that's your realm. I, don't know. I mean, a, a thing that we definitely balance with the anthropomorphizing of the animals in the stage version of Life of Pi is that they are characters in the story, especially Richard Parker. Like, he's truly like the co-lead of the play with the actor playing Pi. Um, so you, the audience needs to connect to his struggles as well. He's also struggling, stranded on a lifeboat, not in his normal day-to-day um, -day life. But you can't humanize him too much or he stops being a tiger and then he's no longer a threat to Pi. And so we work a lot to try to make sure the puppets never feel cute and that Richard Parker doesn't feel like a dog. He feels like a tiger. Um, so there's definitely a balance between the emotional connection to that animal that gives us an almost human sense of what the tiger is experiencing while trying to keep the character very rooted in what it is to be a Bengal tiger um, and not let him become too much human. Do you think that was a choice? Um making the the puppets you know multiple multiple actors performing them and their the actors themselves being so visible with the animal puppet on stage as a as a kind of deeper metaphor for that was I that think, was that yeah. a conscious choice I think it is a conscious choice and we're certainly never trying to hide the humans who are manning these puppets because um, they're part of the breath and the life inside of them Actually, I have something, now that I handed it off to Ashley, can I backtrack? I remember Ang really saying something that was striking while I was listening to Ashley, and I think that's interesting, and I think the challenge of bringing it to life on the stage is completely different than the cinematic. But I remember Ang saying, these animals have to be relentlessly themselves as animals and have nothing to do with anthropomorphism or else it won't work. The tiger has to be completely alien. And that's the disappointment at the end when it wanders off into the bush. There's that connection, but it's still itself. And it's ambiguous whether they were ever connected from his perspective, Richard Parker's perspective, because it's unknowable. Yeah, I, I might add a couple of things there. I, I was thinking about that scene in particular. I mean, that's something that attracted me to, to, to the book, made it seem re real to me, is that, you know, for me, whether I'm calling my doggies and I've got my little 
projection. But, I, yeah. I, but I'm not actually. I'm still very aware that they're just they're fish. They're full of m magic and mystery that I'll never understand, and 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 they're a totally separate world. And to me, a big part of the the book is that. Um, uh, it's the boy discovering the beast within himself, and there's a particular scene, we called it the tiger vision scene, that you you so well was involved with in the, all these creatures when they're, the, they've been on the boat for a while, and the, the tiger's looking down in the water, and the boy's looking down in the water, and we spoke about that, that scene and how it would look specifically and if you look at the boy he's just like really wild then he's like a wild animal himself and they look down at the, these other creatures and it's it's like he's he's really embraced that beast within himself that we are all beasts it's almost like a reverse anthropomorphism to me um right and, and that's and as that far as the script went powerfully yeah to me yeah that was the tremendous opportunity i I was joking around with Jean Castelli. That was our Stargate sequence, if you're familiar with 2001. That was the, the bar. <laughs> a low, uh, very high bar. <laughs> all right, no more questions. I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah. And thank all of you for coming out to the United Theater. Thanks. Buy tickets and the DVD. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoy these kinds of live conversations about the creative process, please join me on Friday, June 16th at the United for a very special screening of the film Paint, followed by a presentation and moderated Q&A from the film's art director, Cassandra Holden. Holden will be talking with me about building the aesthetic universe for the film and making it come to life in collaboration with the director, cinematographer, production designer, and art department. Tickets for this special event are on sale now at unitedtheater.org or at the United Theater box office. We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for tuning in to the United Theatre Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And if you could take a moment to leave a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Your feedback helps us create content that you love. So hit that subscribe button and leave us a review, and we'll see you on the next episode.